the guy right behind you wants one too. Hello? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Ajahn, um, you, earlier you said that, um, I, I believe it's, it's your, either your opinion or um, in, the, in, the con- in the canon that, um, that Nibbana is not a Dhamma. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Bhikkhu Bodhi definitely describes Nibbana as a Dhamma. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think that has to do because of a, he's, a, he's, Sri Lankan, he's in the Sri Lankan tradition? No, the canon, has, the canon describes it both ways. There are passages where it's described as a Dharma and other passages where it's definitely not a Dharma. And the question, of course, is why? Um, one answer I can think of is they talk about experiencing nirvana as an object. And if you experience it as an object, you're not an arahant yet. You can have a taste of it. It's kind of the experience that the lower levels of awakening have towards nirvana. It's still an object. And, you have, and it's something toward which you can feel desire, something towards which you can feel delight. And in that sense, it is a dharma. But when you finally get there, it's beyond Dharmas. Is that that's my reading? Mm-hmm. Yes? Um, you were talking before about karma mm-hmm. and, and one of the b- debates with the, the storehouse and the seeds. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that for Dharmas, they arise and pass so quickly. Can a Dharma... Um, arise and just stay, like a, an act of generosity, mm-hmm. could that be a dharma? Mm-hmm. And could that last until it, it ripens, so it could arise and, and pass away in a lifetime? Yeah. Well, you're, you're pointing to the whole issue they had about whether something arises, is it momentarily? Mm-hmm. Is it just a series of little things arising, or is there actually something that arises and then will last for a while and then stop? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a question that came up in the Abhidhamma. Most of the Abhidhamma said it just arises momentarily and it stops. Whereas in the canon, it's not an issue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things that will drive you crazy. It'll drive you crazy, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, it's, when the Buddha is talking about arising and passing away, it's what you can perceive arising and passing away. And, um, some things seem to arise and pass away more slowly than others. You know? If you're trying to get, and this is one of the problems when you try to get a total logical consistency and turn and turn it all into a system, if everything has to become momentary, then you've got problems. So it's best to stay away from that interpretation. Any other questions? Back. I'm glad you alluded to the Hinayana, Theravada, Mahayana, um, well, I don't like to call it conflict, but uh, schism, thank you. I have long wondered about this, uh, why there is any kind of competitiveness around the Buddha's teachings. It, mm-hmm. it seems to be contradictory mm-hmm. of everything he taught. And I, I wonder whether you have any thoughts that you would share about this. I know I've run into this in different places and have often wondered how to handle it. I, I'm beginning to think that in the West we mm-hmm. might be going beyond it because we're exposed to so much 
Mm-hmm. And it's not a, we don't have the national cultural divisions here. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you would comment about that. Oh, that's a lot to comment on. Um, <laughs> the easy way to say is, oh, let's avoid that question. But no, you can't. <laughs> um, Remember, Buddhism is a human enterprise. And the Buddha taught the Dhamma, taught the Dhamma and the Vinaya. That's his own name for what he taught. Uh, what we have developing over the centuries is Buddhism, and it takes many forms. And when, as in when you have any human enterprise, you're going to have all kinds of things going on. Disagreements, um, some of which are motivated out of compassion and wisdom, and some of which are motivated out of other, other motives. So it shouldn't be surprising that something that's lasted for 2,600 years is going to have differences that have arisen. Um, my own personal feeling is that you, you, find, you find the path that, you, that feels congenial, that's actually working towards the end of suffering, you stick to that path. <coughs> There's a danger in saying that what we're going to go beyond the schisms by just kind of embracing them all. That becomes kind of a smorgasbord buffet where you pick what you like which may not necessarily be the best thing, because each of the different versions has its own kind of inner logic. And by taking objects out, and taking different sections out of the, that inner logic, maybe you're missing you know, what that particular teaching was meant for, what, how it functioned within that logic. So that's one area where you have to be careful. My own feeling is if you have one tradition that you are really solid in, then you can see, okay, there are there elements in the other traditions that, that fit into your path? And you can borrow those. And as for in dealing with people from other pasts, I think this is one of the things where Buddhism is, is actually pretty exemplary. And think of monotheism and how the different religions within that family trade each other. And in Buddhism, I think the differences between Mahayana, say, say East Asian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and, and Theravada, are as great as they are between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. But they don't kill each other. And so as long as we don't kill each other, we're doing pretty well. <laughs> and um, I don't know, when, when, when you know, there is time, I, I'm not much on you know, um, interfaith dialogue. I've got my own internal dialogue. I've got to straighten out first. <laughs> but... Um, this is another cultural issue. I found, especially being trained in, in Thailand, where they're extremely good at conflict avoidance, um, you learn a lot of good skills that way. And if we're going to handle this question properly in the West, the first thing we've got to learn is some of those conflict avoidance skills, which means not necessarily giving in to the other side, but at the same time not creating unnecessary friction. That, those are my thoughts on the matter. Are we ready to plow on? Okay, one more sutra, and then we move on to the philosophers. The sutra is the Gandha Vyuha, which is part of what you probably have heard as the Flower Ornament Sutra, sutra, the Avatamsaka, garland. Flower Garland Sutra also. And <coughs> if you compare this with the Lankavatara and with the um, 
the Tagadagarva teachings. The Lankavatara is basically a psychological explanation of what's going on. The Tagadagarva gives more an ontological and metaphysical explanation that we've got this essence inside. But the Gandavyuha, it's an aesthetic approach to the whole thing. The Gandavyuha is basically a novel. It just got stuck in the end of the sutra. It's a novel of a bodhisattva's quest. Um, Ursula Le Guin could do a good job with this one. He goes from one bodhisattva to another to learn different lessons. <coughs> in this particular case, unlike the other sutras, which start with an abstract teaching and then give you an analogy to explain it, it starts with the analogy. The analogy here is Maitreya's pavilion. Maitreya is the final bodhisattva that he visits. And Maitreya is living in this little tiny pavilion. And so he gets to go inside the pavilion. And what he finds is that the universe is inside the pavilion. And then he gets this clear vision, not only that, okay, the universe is inside the pavilion, but there are many universes inside the universe, operating on many different levels. And they're all interpenetrating all the time. When you hear the teaching on interpenetration, this is the one it comes from. In other words, you look at, say, in Maitreya may have a throne. Well, you look into the, into the arm of his throne and you realize that each atom in the throne is another universe containing myriads of beings. And they're all operating on different time scales. What may be an hour for us may be you know, aeons for them. And it's all interpenetrating. Um, this, what this means is... Um, For the purposes of making merit, all you have to do is think. Okay, lots of merit just to that chair, and you've already, you've already spread you know goodwill to you know countless beings on that minor level there. So this multiplies this for the, for the bodhisattva who wants to make a lot of merit really fast. Conceiving of the universe in this way is a really good technique of approaching it because there's not just us in this room; there are whole universes in this room. And all you say is goodwill to everybody in here, and you've got millions and billions already. In the terms of emptiness, what this means is that dharmas, it doesn't mean that dharmas are not present, it's simply they have no boundaries. Because everything is interpenetrating. There's nothing to separate any of us from anybody else. We're already connected, we're already one. Because space and time are also empty, they can interpenetrate on many scales at once. As I said, one spot can contain many, many worlds and exist in many inter, inter, interpenetrating worlds. And a moment of time on one scale can encompass aeons and others. So the ramifications of a single meritorious thought focused in a single spot can't be counted. And because of these multiple layers of being, multiple layers of scale, means that emptiness means the exact opposite of lack. It's full. This room is full of universes. You are full of universes. We're all connected because there are no real, no real boundaries. Happiness means the exact opposite of lack and interdependence, which for the early teachings was the sign of suffering. It's the opposite of suffering. It's because we're all interconnected, because we're all interdependent. All you have to do is think one good thought and you've done lots and lots of good for everybody else. So in this sense, the emptiness of experience doesn't matter as long as the emptiness is so full. Now in India, this was never taken over by any of the philosophers. I mean, I think they took it and said, well, this is a really nice vision, but it doesn't make any sense and we can't systematize it into a philosophy. But in China, that's exactly what happened. Whole schools of philosophy developed around the, the teaching of interpenetration. 
So that's another way of approaching the issue of emptiness. In other words, the teachings of no boundaries and the teachings of inner penetration. The story goes that Fatsan, who was one of the, I don't know if I got the, the tones right, who um, was one of the Huayan teachers in China, <coughs> decided to illustrate this principle of inner penetration to, to the Empress Wu. And so we had a room constructed in which she had a, a lamp and a Buddha image in the middle of the room, and then mirrors all around, and then mirrors on top and mirrors below. And he took her through the room, and he showed that not only did the image of the lantern appear in every mirror, but also every other mirror appeared in every other mirror, so that all things are interpenetrating and interconnecting. That's one version of the story. The other version of the story was that as soon as she saw this room, she really liked it. She went back and she had the similar room put into her palace in her bedroom, which is where she made love. <laughs> as long as everything gets repeated on many, many scales, let's do this on many, many scales. <laughs> so that covers the sutras, the Mahayana sutras on emptiness, or the major ones at least. Let's go a little bit to the philosophers who tried to pull the teachings from the sutras together. And the very first great Mahayana philosopher was a man named Asanga, A-S-A-N-G-A. And he was the first teacher of what ultimately became the Yogacara school. Now what Asanga was trying to do was to take all the teachings in the early canon and all the teachings in the Mahayana sutras that were extant at his time, which is probably the third century. AD, and create a framework to hold the whole thing together. And in this framework, let's see, he divided, he divided reality into three types, three types of reality. First there's what can be known. In other words, what can be directly experienced. And then there's the support of the knowable, and then there's the entry into the knowable. Okay? Those are the three categories he had. Now the knowable consists of the, the three own natures that we saw in the resolution of enigmas. You know the what's the word? I'm getting kind of blurry myself. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, which we said were the three types of um, emptiness. The emptiness in terms of origination, the emptiness in terms of their characteristics, and the emptiness in ultimate terms. Okay, that's, that's something you can know directly, according to Asanga. And dependent core arising, and all the other dharmas of experience. Excuse me, it's the khandhas, not, not yet dependent core arising. Okay. Okay, the support of the knowable is what we have to assume as underlying experience. And this contains the storehouse consciousness, which has all those karmic seeds. And according to Asanga, dependent co-arising is the process by which these seeds in the storehouse consciousness kind of bubble up into create experience. Everything that can be known. And for him, these seeds are language, they're words. Now, going over this material, I still haven't worked out 
thoroughly exactly what the role of words is in Mahayana, because it changes from person to person. But I think it's fascinating that many, many times reality is basically kind of words, or one level of reality is just these words. Okay, and dependent co-arising is where, how these seeds give rise to direct experience. In other words, the factors of dependent co-arising don't give rise to each other. There's this substrate underneath that has all these seeds, and the seeds come popping up. So when we talk about feeling giving rise to craving, craving, in Asanga's point of view, the feeling doesn't give rise to craving at all. There's a karmic seed for feeling, and then there's a karmic seed for craving. Now this is going to be important, because when you stop back and think about dependent core rising in the early canon, once you cut the whole process, that, that cuts all your experience of everything. Now that's the last thing that any Mahayana philosopher would want, was you to you know, check out and go into nirvana. You must have something left over that will continue, keep, keep on going. So in other words, he, he re revises the whole rules about what's going on in causality. <coughs> Because as long as you're not yet awakened, there's always going to be this storehouse consciousness with these different seeds coming up. So the process is not to cut the process of de dependent core arising. Instead, the, well, the process of the practice is what he calls the entry into the knowable. Okay, let's see. Okay, this entry into the noble of a path is something that you're not responsible for. There are bodhisattvas who place seeds in what's called the, excuse me, this is a cool name, the reality realm of the Buddhas, okay? in the forms of the words and images of the Mahayana teachings. In other words, these bodhisattvas have been thinking good words, good ideas, and sort of spreading them out there into this other substrate, which is the reality realm. <coughs> and as, you, as these seeds begin to mature within you, Ultimately, you reach a point where you arrive at that state of, um, excuse me, non-dual consciousness, because you've seen that outside of your experience, outside of your direct experience, there's nothing behind there aside from this storehouse consciousness, which is just a mental thing. So everything is purely intramental here, and there's what's called the reversal of the basis, in which you drop your storehouse consciousness, and from that point on, the basis for all your experience becomes this reality realm which is the Dharmagaya, non-dual consciousness, um, the Tathagata Garbha. All those good things that we were talking about as being sort of one and unified. That becomes the substrate for all your experience from that point on. And then according to Asanga, what happens then is that you go through this process of what's re-getting re re back in touch with the reality realm in a direct way at least ten times through your many lifetimes as a bodhisattva. And each time you get in touch with it, you gain deeper perfections and more powers until you finally become a true Buddha yourself. Once you become a true Buddha, then you continue making merit for the world. You yourself don't do anything, but you have set into motion through your previous vows what are called emanation bodies that are going to come out and appear for other beings and basically do your work for you. You don't have to do anything at that point. And what's important for a Sangha is the fact that discernment comes in three stages. And even though there was lots of uh, questions about a Sangha's other categories here, about the knowable and the support of the knowable and the entry into the knowable, the idea that discernment comes in three phases holds across all Mahayana schools. 
and those phases are preliminary, excuse me, preparatory, non-imagined, and subsequent. <laughs> In other words, the build-up, then the real thing, and then the follow-through. Okay. Okay, in the pre preparatory discernment, you meditate on the teachings of the storehouse consciousness to see that all dharmas are just mere constructs of consciousness, that all experiences are like the colors perceived in meditative practice, unrelated to anything outside. Seeing that there is nothing out there to grasp and no one in here to do the grasping, okay, then, grasp, then all grasping falls away. And this leads to the second stage, which is non-imagined discernment, okay, where all the imaginations of the, of the imagined realm fall away. And you're left with, <clears throat> and even the concept of mere constructs of consciousness, the concept of the storehouse consciousness, these concepts all drop, drop away and you enter into the Dharma body, which is beyond the scope of the intellect. Okay, and this is also described as the such, suchness of the perfected nature, the initial purity of all dharmas, and the experience of non-duality, non-duality between existence and non-existence, condition and unconditioned unity and multiplicity. This is also described as the Tathagata Garbha, you know, the, that the Buddha womb or the Buddha fetus inside you. Okay, this is followed by the third stage in which you resume your action within the phenomenal world, but without any delusion. And kind of you've seen through all these constructs, and you realize okay, there's this oneness that underlies everything. And so from this point on, everything within your experience comes not from the storehouse consciousness, but from this reality realm which is a pure Mahayana teachings. And so it finally yields, and what yields in what's called the non-abiding nirvana of Buddhahood. In other words, it's, you don't really go into nirvana, and yet you don't stay in samsara. You kind of straddle the line without really being established on either side. And you don't have to do anything more, but your enjoyment bodies and emanation bodies continue to function. Uh, the emanation body is Buddhas that would actually appear on the physical realm like we have here. Enjoyment bodies are the, the bodies that when Mahayana adepts go into meditation and then when have visions of the great cosmic Buddhas, those still are up there to be seen as well. But you don't have to do anything anymore. These bodies just kind of function on their own. In this way, your actions continue without end for the liberation of all. And here... An, Asanga uses another analogy which gets picked up and really everybody else in the Mahayana tradition runs with. Um, he compares it to training in magic. In the first phase, your first phase of discernment, the pre preparatory discernment, you're trying not to be fooled by the magician's tricks. In the second phase, you actually see through the trick. And then in the third phase, you come back and you become a magician yourself. But in this case, you work magic for the good of all beings. Okay. So all of a sudden, magic is given a lot more positive positive valuation, because from the Mahayana point of view, there's really nothing behind it. Any questions on Asanga? He's not easy. And it's late in the day. <laughs> okay, let's go into Pava We wake up. Okay, Asanga was the first in the Yogacara school. Pava Vivega is, I would say he's the first Mahayana philosopher who picked up on Nagarjuna, but he was the one who really did it systematically, more than anybody else. 
He accepts from Asanga the Ajna. Prabhupada comes in the 6th century. We're talking about 300 years separating these two guys. And, in, and after Asanga, all the Mahayana teachers, they didn't have at that point the, the, the idea of a school of Yogacara. They just had Mahayana philosophy. That's what everybody did. They took Asanga's teachings and they elaborated on them and they worked a few changes on them, but there was no real radical break away from them. Pava Urega was the one to make the real break, and he was saying, look, all this business about the three sabhavas and the, and the storehouse consciousness and all this other stuff, that's really counter, counterproductive. You're just piling on more and more and more concepts, and what you're trying to do is get the mind to a state where it has no concepts, right? So let's cut through all that stuff and go back to Nagarjuna and use Nagarjuna's teachings on how to take, take apart views and apply that to the Mahayana quest. In other words, you don't have to worry, think about whether mere constructs of consciousness and that kind of stuff. Simply see what Nagarjuna said about views that you could create out of any ideas of existence or non-existence. Back to, basically, he's going back to Nagarjuna's idea of using conventional emptiness to arrive at the state of non-dual awareness. <clears throat> so he's the person who revived uh, Nagarjuna's teachings and invented the term the Madhyamaka school. However, he was working in the 6th century, and Nagarjuna was working in the 1st or the 2nd, and in the meantime, a lot of things had changed in India. And one of them was that logic had become a lot more sophisticated. There was a teacher named Dignaga, who basically set out the rules for how you're going to argue a case to be convincing. And Dignaga is kind of interesting, just as a little sideline here. Um, he was the person who made it possible for people from different schools of thought to argue with each other. Because prior to that time, everybody had their own, their own theories about logic, what constitutes a good, decent logical argument. And you, know, you say the, the Brahmins would state their case, and the Buddhists would say, ah, hey, your logic stinks, it doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't convince us at all. And the Brahmins would say, well, your logic, I can say a few things about your logic's mother as well. <laughs> and so then nobody got anywhere, you know. <laughs> and then Dinaka came along, he was a Buddhist, but he was able to rewrite the whole ground rules for a logical argument. And he says, you don't want to start, if you're going to start any kind of understanding about reality, you don't want to start with texts. You want to start with epistemology. How do we know things? And this begins to sound like, you know, 17th, 18th century European philosophy. How do we know something? Let's start with that one first. Then when you, once you figure out how you know something, then you can figure out how you build an, a logical argument based on what you know. And then you've got something that's univer- a universal rule of a universal system of logic. Everybody bought in. So with Pawa Urega coming along in the next century, if he's going to make Nargarjuna make sense, he has to express Nargarjuna's arguments in terms of Dignaga's logical rules. And one of Dignaga's logical rules was, if you're going to state an argument, you have to tell us what all your assumptions are. You have to be clear about that. I'm not just going to accept this kind of floating in logical attack, you know, these... these these little attacks where you attack and run. Okay, I want to know where you're coming from when you attack, if I'm going to accept your argument. That was what Dignaga had said. So what Pava Vivega did was he went through and took all of Nagarjuna's arguments and sorted out, okay, what are the logical assumptions underlying these arguments for the purpose of making them convincing. And in cases where Nagarjuna didn't really make much sense to the people in his age, well, Pava Vivega kind of fudged the arguments. 
but at least he'd set them out in a logical sense. Now, Pau Uega was sharp enough to realize, okay, we're not trying to establish a Madhyamaka system here. We're just using the arguments, phrasing them in a new way so they're more convincing, so that ultimately you can get to this ultimate truth, which is the, the, non, the non-arising of dharmas. What Asanga had said, non-imagined discernment. At that point, you drop all your views, including the logical arguments that you made. And, and after that, Baba Vega doesn't have any differences from Asanga. You go through these three stages of discernment, you get in touch with the non-dual awareness, and from that point on, you're operating out of the non-dual awareness in your bodhisattva, working for the good of the world. Of course, Pau Uyga ran into that problem when he was trying to fit Nagarjuna with Mahayana teaching, was that Nagarjuna had said, you know, ultimate truth is not something you can describe. You can't even describe it as the non-arising of dharmas, the total lack of views. And so Pau Uyga said, there's two kinds of ultimate truth, the truth you can describe and the truth you can't describe. <laughs> century comes another Madhyamaka philosopher whose name is Jandrakirti. And Jandrakirti raised an important less question in this whole question of tactical skill or skill and means, which is, if you're trying to persuade other people about the truth of your teaching, how are you going to do it? Are you first going to start with their assumptions and then move them from their assumptions to yours? Or are you going to embody your teaching in the way you do it? Kind of show them by example what your teaching is and what it can do. Now, Pao Uwega had taken the first tack. He said, okay, let's start where people are and use what seems logical to them and then work from there up to getting them into the state of mind that we want. Chandrakirti said, you can't do that. That's, that's thinking, if you say that any logical argument has to have assumptions, you're saying that words have to have inherent meaning and that's precisely what you know, we don't want to do in Madhyamaka. And so he reverted to the more the hit and run theory of logical, logical attack. He has a great line, though, about words. Words, he says, words, he said, are not policemen on the prowl. We are not subject to their independent authority. They take their meaning from the intention of the person speaking. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> Let me say that again. Words are not policemen on the prowl. We are not subject to their independent authority. They take their meaning from the intention of the person using them. Mm-hmm. In other words, words carry logical implications only if you're trying to build a system out of them. But if you're simply using them to attack the views of other people, they don't have to have logical implications, they don't have to have underlying assumptions. And so he, and he, he claims that Nagarjuna used only one kind of argument, which is what they call the brasanga, which means instead of trying to assert something from your own assumptions, you go into the position taken by the other person, find where it's illogical, and kind of destroy it from within. What do they call it? Bunker busters? <laughs> you go and destroy it, and then you pull out. Because um, he's saying this, this is the Madhyamaka approach. Because you're, you're, as you start talking about logical assumptions, you're beginning to create a, view, a system of views, which is precisely what Nagarjuna, what Nagarjuna was arguing against. Okay. However, Jantakirti had couple problems. One is he was never really popular in India. He didn't have much influence. One of the reasons 
was that Nagarjuna himself had not restricted himself to prasanga arguments. I mean, he used lots of other kinds of arguments as well. If you go back and you look in the, in the Garikas, you find that sometimes he says, well, the Buddha said X, therefore you know, we have to start with what the Buddha said. That's not a prasanga argument. Other times he talks about, well, this particular argument involves the logical, uh, excuse me, infinite regress. And there's nothing illogical about infinite regress. There's lots of infinite regress in the world. So that was one of the reasons why Jantakirti was not influential. And secondly, Nargajara himself had taught the necessity of having views on a conventional level. If you don't have dependent core rising as your conventional level of emptiness, your conventional level of view, you wouldn't understand why it's important to let go of views. You have to have a view about why it's important to let go of views before you're going to let go of views. I mean, it's just a practical strategy. And Jantakirti was denying the, the virtue of that strategy. So he didn't have many takers in India. He did have a lot of takers in Tibet. And um, I don't want to go into too much, in fact, I don't want to go into Tibetan stuff on emptiness at all, because that's a whole other can of worms. Um, but it's interesting to point out that, that <coughs> in the Gelug system in Tibet, they give Chantakirti pride of place. I mean, he's the number one Manyalika. And, he's, and everybody says, he's the one you want, to, you, you want to work up to. But in working up to him, they use Pavaruvega's technique. You know, first you have to study Pavaruvega, understand the logical suppositions underlying these arguments, before you can move on to Jantakirti and drop the logical arguments. Well, that's precisely what Pavaruvega was doing himself. So there's this real irony in Tibetan, Tibetan philosophy is that they give great honor to Jantakirti and they they say, you know, Pavarek was okay, but you know, he didn't really get the final point. But then they actually use his method to get there. So, okay. At any rate, let's get back to India. Okay. In the eighth century, there was another philosopher whose name was Santarakshita, or Shantarakshita. And by that time, someone else had rewritten the rules of epistemology and the rules of logic. The guy's name was Dharmakirti. And Dharmakirti had an interesting um, proposition, which was that the words we use, excuse me, I've got to read this. The words that we use apply not to realities, but to our ideas about reality. When we're talking about something, we, the experience of reality, he said, is so fleeting that you can't come up with a word in time to describe the reality. Okay? So what you're only the only things that the words describe are your afterthoughts that have come up afterwards. And especially if you're dealing in one of these momentary ideas about how moments come fast like this, it makes a lot of sense. Because by the time you've got a word, you know, how many moments have passed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tamakirti himself was not a Mahayanist. Um, he was a Hinayanist. But uh, Shantarakshita, who was a Mahayanist, realized that here was a potential teaching for pulling all these various teachings about emptiness together into one. Because look at what we've got so far in the Mahayana on emptiness. We have the not-self nature of dharmas. We have the idea that dharmas are mere constructs of consciousness. That's another meaning for emptiness. We have the idea that dharmas ultimately do not arise or pass away. That's another meaning for emptiness. And he says, if you, if you adopt what Dharmakirti said about words, all those three things mean the same. In other words, 
lack of self-nature. These are just words that we're describing. The idea that the dharmas don't really arise and pass away. Again, it's just words arising and passing away. It's not the real thing that we're talking about. And because the words themselves are intermetal, everything is just mere constructs of consciousness. So he finally pulls everything all together with this one theory. But by that time, something new had come along, come down the road. I got my high school education in Virginia. I'm just thinking about this one incident. Um, when I was taking Latin in freshman year in high school, I had this really good old southern, southern lady as our Latin teacher. And as she was explaining, when she was talking about something happening with Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar comes back to her and he says, you ought to see what's coming down the road. <laughs> so, <laughs> I learned Latin with a southern accent. <laughs> At any rate, by the time Santarashita came along, there's something new on the Buddhist scene, and that was the Tantra. Vajrayana. Okay. And... Basically, Tantra is the practice of what they call sadhana, S-A with a macron, D-H-A-N-A, in which you invoke a deity through the use of mantras, mudras, and mandalas, visualization of mandalas. Once you've invoked the deity into yourself, then you can assume the identity of the deity together with the deity's knowledge and powers. That's the central ritual in, in Tantra. Um, the ritual is derived from a group of wandering ascetics who originally were not associated with any particular religion at all. They would spend their times in cemeteries. Um, many times the rituals would involve what's called transgressive sacrality, which basically means finding holy power in things that are considered dirty, defiling, transgress social norms. Um, among these social norms were you don't dig up corpses. <laughs> you don't stand on corpses and have religious um, rituals. Um, you don't engage in sex as part of a religious ritual. You don't engage in sex with somebody outside of your caste. Um, and there are all sorts of other gross things that they were doing in these rituals. The idea being that because there are so many taboos around these things, they must contain a lot of power. Let's tap into those, that power. Really. It's, and it does have a kind of psychological logic to it. And for they, they have the first accounts of this kind of wandering, it's hard to call them ascetic, because <laughs> they engaged in all kinds of stuff, <laughs> these weird wanderers. Um, the first accounts of them are around the 2nd century AD. By the time you get to the 7th and 8th centuries AD in India, there was um, what one scholar has described as the rise of a culture of belligerence in which war is glorified. And I must admit, reading about the rise of the culture of belligerence in India in the 7th and 8th centuries, I, had, I saw some parallels in America in the 21st century. It was kind of scary. Um, basically what happened, there's, there's kind of an economic reason for all of this. Up to this point, you would, you would have occasionally have empires in India. Somebody would take over the whole subcontinent and rule it for a while, and then it would break down into little city-states, and then they would get, somebody would get the power and wealth to pull it back together again. Well, by the 7th and 8th centuries, the, the Arabs from the Middle East had begun to take over all sea commerce. And because they had taken over the commerce, they had all the money. When they had all the money, none of the princes in India had the money enough to become an emperor, you know, to buy enough materials and to pay enough soldiers and everything. 
And so what you had was this long period of internecine warfare, where all these little states were fighting back and forth with each other all the time. And because everything was getting turned topsy-turvy, basically it was a, it was a prime time for anyone who just really wanted to grab power to do whatever they could to grab power. And some of the people who took on power during this period claimed that they got their power from adepts of Tantra. That they had gone out into the cemeteries and had actually got their power to come in and to throw. And you had these people who were not from the Brahmin caste, not from the noble warrior caste, suddenly taking over. And it was turning society upside down. And there was a, a great glorification of violence. <laughs> Um, they talk about the poems that were written about the kings in these days. Prior to this time, poets talking about kings would try to praise them by saying, this is a good king because he would sometimes put his own immediate benefit up, up to the side and then honor moral principles. In the period of the seventh, beginning of the 7th and 8th centuries, it was shifted, shifted around. Kings were glorified for throwing away moral principles and just going for their immediate interest. This was someone who was daring, someone who was brave, someone who could smirk <laughs> to a whole nation and get away with it, you know. Um, and so as everything was falling apart like this, and these people were claiming that they got their, their power to rule from these adepts practicing Tantra, you began to find that the support for Buddhism and the other more conventional religions of the time was beginning to drop off. And so the Buddhists tended to respond in one of two ways. One way was saying, hey, look, we've, we've got to hold to the truth of the Dharma as it is and not get worried about whether we get support or not. Other people said, hey, why don't we adopt some of these tantric rituals ourselves? And so you begin to see the, the writing of texts in which instead of invoking you know, sort of the strange deities that the, uh, the sadhana adepts had originally evoked, you would start evoking, uh, bodhi invoking bodhisattvas get a bodhisattva to come down, use mudras, use mantras, and visualize the mandala of the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva would come down into you, would give you knowledge, give you power. And this, this um, was then taught as a kind of a shortcut to awakening. Instead of having to go through that long process of building up your bar maze all this lifetime, why don't you just tap into the awakening of somebody who's already awakened and sort of siphon off some of yourself. And this became a new type of Buddhism. Now the question is, how are you going to explain this in terms of Buddhist teachings? <laughs> and one of the teachings that they began to use was the teaching on emptiness. The idea being that as you go through the stages of the ritual, you begin to realize how empty all of your normal sensory, sensory reality is. You get back in touch with the original power. They call this the Vajra, Vajra realm, or the diamond realm. This is where the term Vajrayana came from. And because everything is so malleable, because it's empty, then you can change things through the power. From, from that point, you can change the nature of reality. You can change your own identity into that of a bodhisattva. Using that power, then you can, change, you can have an effect on the world around you as well. The different powers that you would say in order to say, you know, bring hail and brimstone down on somebody's field came from the fact that the elements in the air were all essentially empty, and therefore, through the power of your thought, you could turn them into something else from what they originally were, because they all came from the same source, which is what you had just got in touch with. 
So, when we leave the history of emptiness, of emptiness in India, this is how we leave it. It takes on a whole new role. And that's what my notes say on that topic. Do you have any questions?